So what were you saying about the uh, mummy and uh, earlier? Yeah, we were we were comparing it to um, Indiana Jones, and I think it comes from a different place. You know, the the original mummy movie was. Um, yeah, the original Mummy movie back in the 30s, what year was that, 1932, was a horror movie. And, you know, that's what, the, that's what it was sort of designed to be even when they – this is like a reboot, like a, like a 60-year-later reboot, which is kind of a weird thing. But um, that's what they were going for in a few different iterations of the movie. And they were almost – I know that they were talking about originally having to be like almost like a Terminator um, type of idea that's what the mummy was going to be in uh, the new version of this movie and so looking at it like that that's that's more based around um, what the central antagonist is in the movie and obviously a movie like Indiana Jones is it's named after the protagonist so one of them is we're looking we're we're following the exploits of a hero and the other one is we're following the exploits of the bad guy you know, at least in name and sort of that's how it, it could have turned out. Obviously, when Brendan Fraser gets in there and we start caring about his character and then Rachel Weiss and all that stuff, it, you know, it becomes sort of like Indiana Jones. But I think it still comes from a fundamentally different place. All right. I just I guess I was uh, watching these interviews and Brendan Fraser kept talking about Indiana Jones and how he grew up. And so I just when I went back, I just felt a lot of Indiana Jones vibes in certain areas. Yeah, certainly. Vibes I'm with. Yeah, absolutely. And, okay. it, you know, things things tend to um, migrate toward the, the part that other people understand, what we have in common, and what we can all use as shorthand for how these stories work. And so that's probably what they eventually realized was going to be a better sell, too, in the creation of the movie itself. Uh, I thought... I thought the writing was kind of weird because I felt like the story progressed through Rick's stupidity. Like every time he, and I, I, I don't know if they did it for comical effect or what, but it just didn't seem funny to me. And it just, I couldn't buy it. Like every time he did something stupid and that's what caused everyone else to get in danger. And that's, I felt like that's how everything bad happened. Because if he would have listened to the people originally, then none of this would have happened. Yeah, that is a little frustrating. I mean, a lot of times, <laughs> you know, you, you want the character, the central characters to be in charge of their own destiny in terms of like, they ultimately have say over what happens to them. Um, and that's how they react. You know, that's all in reactions to what happens within the plot, what happens from the outside antagonists but you also don't want them to be the reason why the plot has to keep continuing you know that's one of those things in like um uh in romantic comedies where people get really frustrated because you're like if, if these people just talk this out for like 10 seconds this whole movie would be solved like everything would end <laughs> right now and that's so frustrating and it's that's how horror movies a lot of times are too it's like just stop running into the forest when you know that's where the ghosts are just like just go to the police and deal with it and so this this definitely verges on a little bit of that where you're like just stop doing the things you're not supposed to do and this will all be solved um i i think it's sort of lazy filmmaking uh, or writing at least and so that is that is definitely one thing that turns me off about movies like that um i i want the i always want the the things that are befalling the characters to be so strong and so overwhelming and so, um, so smart that you can't understand how they're going to get out of it. I don't want them causing their own problems. Uh, that, right. That's how I feel about it usually. Yeah. Yeah. And like, even when you're watching a movie and they're taking ideas that could never happen, I always want it to feel like it could happen. Like you take sure. fantasy ideas and make it seem like it could happen. And I felt like in this movie, there's too much stuff that could happen, like with him being hanging and not dying. And <laughs> yeah, for as long as he's yeah. hanging. If you're gonna if you're gonna make fun of the rules of physics, yeah, I'm out. I mean, that's <laughs> sort of what I have problems with the uh, 
the newest versions of the Fast and Furious. I'm not like a big fan of those or anything, but I've seen a few of them here and there. And um, they just get increasingly more ridiculous. Now they're just superheroes. Like they're just <laughs> doing things that superheroes do. They're not like normal humans that are strong or that are agile or that are good with cars. You know, they just have like actual powers and shit now. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. And so like, yeah, it's I feel, over it. I feel like everybody wants to be a superhero nowadays, I guess. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. It, the, uh, the studios more than anyone want everyone to be a superhero that is on the screen for them because that's where all the money is. So, and that's sad too. And it's sad in its own way. Although there is one take on superheroes I like. Uh, do you watch? You have Amazon Prime. Yeah. You ever seen The Boys? Yeah, a bit of it. Yeah, I I would like to watch the whole series. I've heard it's really good, and uh, what I watched is is um, definitely a good twist on it. I think that stuff always needs to come along and sort of poke fun at the tropes of what the the situation because people get too deep the um the creators of all this stuff get too deep because they have to give people more of what they want and more of what they've already gotten and so they end up just um being self-referential all the time and so i think that's what's good about things like the boys is they can look at it and be like here's all how stupid this is in a lot of ways and here's how this would work out in real life yeah um I felt like in this movie, The Mummy, I I liked the uh, bad guys more than the actual good guys. I didn't think the good guys were written well enough to actually care about them. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, um, usually the best place to start if you have a horror movie or if you have any sort of movie where there's contention between two strong entities, whatever those happen to be, um, you want to really – good bad guy the better he is the better that thing is the better the fight is from the protagonist and so that's usually a good recipe for success it usually makes the good guy really good as well because the good the, the good thing has to compete with the really good bad thing um but yeah. yeah i think they they let you down a little bit in terms of this um brendan's character is not wholly realized in a lot of ways and there's just some goofiness there that I think they could have Rick O'Connell's his name. I think they could have, um, yeah, made it more dynamic. I, I think that's what you get too. When you have, you know, a version 40 of a movie there, which is really what this was in terms of uh, development, because it went through a bunch of different types of scripts and what it was going to be. And then when you act, when you cast some person, then the, you know, the, um, the way it's played, the, the nuances and the idiosyncratic choices that any character or I'm sorry, any actor or any uh, director is going to make that can change things like drastically without it in, in choices that seem sort of meaningless, like um, in isolated events. But when you see it as a whole, you just take them as a totally different person, you know, different character. And I think that's maybe what, what would happen in a situation like this. Two revisions before with a different, and Brendan Fraser's great. I'm not, I'm not knocking on him. That's not the point but it turns it into a different character. So like you think a better, a different actor would have been a better choice for that character in that movie. I, it depends what you want out of the movie. I, that would be a hard sell. That's not a, a hill I want to die on. It's trying to convince people <laughs> that Brendan Fraser shouldn't have been in the mummy. No, I'm not going to say that. People are going to be like, well, you're crazy. Who else are you going to put in there? Get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. No, I just think it would have been a different movie. And for people who wanted uh, a little more realism, it might have worked better. But I don't think people go to that movie for realism. So I think that's yeah. sort of a, an, an empty um, venture in that regard. It's been kind of weird, though, because like, there doesn't seem to have been a whole lot of movies that he's done after this. Because I don't, I don't think I've seen anything in him in like 10 years or so. It's been a while. Yeah, he fell off. Um, I, I know he gained some weight. He had some medical issues. There's there's quite a few things that happened with him. I'm, I'm, it's hard to say exactly where he fell off. Um, it wasn't like he was um, – uh, what's her name? I can't remember her name now. But, you know, there's been a, a number of stories of actors and actresses that people just stopped casting because they got so sick of dealing with them. You know, there, there's, there's some pretty good stories of that that, 
you know, they were great. People liked to watch them, but no one wanted to make movies with them. And so they just sort of disappear off the scene. But yeah, I mean, he's been making things here and there, but he was huge and then just sort of fell off. That's how it felt. Um, so yeah, I mean, that happens and it's the, um, you know, what have you done for me lately is how Hollywood typically works. You know, if you're not hot, then you're not. And that's a big thing to be. It's like, you can't just sort of have a career if you're a leading man in that sort of situation, because you got to get, keep getting leading man roles. As soon as you step down to something a little smaller than like, you're going backwards. Uh, and that's a, that's a heavy burden to um, wear on your shoulder, I'm sure. So actors like uh, Michael Pina, who never have a lead role, they're always like side characters. You think like those people don't have to deal with as much crap as actors who are trying to be lead roles and always having to try to please everybody? Or how, how do you think that works? I think, I think there's still potential to go up, you know, like, if you are in a supporting role, then being in a slightly smaller supporting role, no one notices. You're just in a role, right? But if you right. are a lead and then you go to a supporting, then that's an obvious decline in like stature within the movie. And so I would say if you start putting, if Tom Cruise starts being, you know, like the third or fourth biggest role in a movie, then something's weird, unless it's like a comedy sort of thing like Tropic Thunder or something like that, you know, but, but if it's a, let's say it is an action movie and now he is the third most important character in the movie. Like here, like what happened to Tom Cruise. And so Michael Pena can be a supporting dude and have like even a small, like 10 minute role and everyone's, and usually people are like, Oh, Michael Pena is sweet in that role. He's really good. And that's fine for him. So I, I, yeah, I think it's a heavy burden to bear no matter what, once you start getting only lead roles. The whole industry and career just seems kind of crazy. Like uh, I was reading an article of um, Jonah Hill um, and someone else, or jo Kevin James, Jonah Hill and Kevin James, who was uh -huh. comparing both of them, and was talking about how a lot of times when both actors lost weight, people – didn't want to watch them as much. It, it was harder for them to get into roles because they were serial typed as fat comedy. Like they had to be fat to be comical. And it's kind of sad that it's so hard for certain people. Yeah, totally. I mean, comedy body type and, you know, just like what you see in a person in a character and an actor after one second of looking at that often defines the, the ability for you to find them funny in any given way. So just like how people look is very indicative of what people expect from them in their comedy. And so I'm not saying that's fair. I'm just saying that's the reality and that's usually the reality. So if you're used to a character, an actor being the lovable fat guy, and now he's the skinny, trim, smart guy, you don't really want that because it's not why you go to that guy. There's plenty of funny, trim, smart guys, right? You're going to go talk to that guy for that sort of comedy. And so when everyone is always building a brand for forever, you know, for hundreds of years, that's like what you're doing, no matter what it is in any type of um, media, you're like, you're that character. Usually, you know, Jimmy Stewart plays basically, uh, I'm not knocking in any way, shape or form, but I'm saying like he, he plays, the everyman. He plays someone you can trust. He plays someone who's earnest and true and real and um, and likable and 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 has faults and things like that. Like that's who you want him to be. And so it is tough to take him in a totally different way. If he put if if Jimmy Stewart put on a hundred pounds and started doing slapstick and was now in a Three Stooges bit, you'd be like, who is this? Why am I watching this? What is this deal? This is weird. I I would rather watch someone else do that. We already have that. Some other actor already does that stuff, right? And um, so that's like people like people to stay, like other people to stay in their lane, typically. And I'm not, that sort of sucks for the actors, but that's how it is. It's very few actors who can just do whatever they want and not get crap for it. Yeah, you sort of have to start early with that. You know, you have to be a maverick 
character that people don't really understand to begin with. And then you can sort of do whatever you want. But if they know you from, from five specific roles and like, that's who you play and that's where you are. Kevin James. I mean, like he's the sort of doofus sort of getting run over by his wife, sort of Paul Blart nonsense guy. If he wants to just go and change that and lose a bunch of weight and all that, then people, they find it hard to accept that. Yeah. Cause you're like, this is what I want out of you, dude. So if you're going to give me something else, I'm not interested. Uh, sucks for them. And, and yeah. you know, I applaud anyone that can go lose weight and like have a healthier outlook on life and all that stuff. That's awesome. But it's, it doesn't come without its issues. I think they're less now. I think, I think there's more like, uh, there's more immediate feedback from when people hate on it, that other people are going to step in and be like, how dare you could say that about someone who's, trying to get healthy or trying to lose weight or trying to change themselves or trying to better themselves or whatever it happens to be um, to, you know, to, um, to sort of set those scales a little bit more even hopefully. Um, I feel like Samuel Jackson's always different. What do you think about that? Like he, he's never in the same consistent genre of movies. He's always doing different kinds of genres. Yeah, but if he doesn't yell once and say mf -er, people got no time for him. He's still got to do it. It's still the reason why they go to see his movies and see him in a movie. It, it, he, he has many more powers outside of that, but that's what they want, ultimately. You know, it's, it's everyone's typecast in their own way. No matter how dynamic they are, they're still typecast. They're still a specific type. Um even when we see Meryl Streep and she's in a, you know, the, the movie that just came out, Don't Look Up, it's like we still expect her to have um, depth, even within a role like that, even when she's playing like sort of an idiot, you know, I don't know what you would call it. She's playing the president, so he can only be so like slapstick and stupid. But even when she's playing um, someone sort of soulless and heartless and, and, and um, anti presidential, hopefully. Um, you she still imbues it with um with tact and reality within that character i mean she's not she's not playing something just for laughs or just for being for being um what would you say the foil within a situation where you can just have a bunch of dumb stuff happen and the, here she is meryl streep in the middle of that i mean she's still playing it real and she's still trying to have it be as accurate as possible to who that character would be in a, in a way that could exist in life. And that's, what's so scary about it. It's so sad. And so, so like shocking is you're like, yeah, I believe that that, that a president could be like that and could be that um, sort of vile when it comes to what actually matters to the American public. So, you know, it's like, we expect something from Meryl Streep. And if she went and, was Chelsea Handler all of a sudden, not that she acts in a lot of movies or something. It just, we just wouldn't like it, really. It's not the same look. Do, um, do you think Brendan Fraser was typecast after this movie came out? Or what do you think his, whenever he was doing movies, what was his typecast, you'd think? Yeah, goofy, lovable. Um, you know, crazy stuff happens around him. He does dumb stuff to cause crazy stuff to happen. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. You got typecast in that. If he wanted to go make Schindler's List after that, you know, if he wanted to be um, a serious actor in that sort of sense, it's hard for people to accept that. You got you to gotta have just the right project. And so it's not that, like, I think people want to believe that Brendan Fraser can be a good actor, and he is a good actor. I'm not even uh, trashing him by any means, but I'm saying, like, it's, if he wants to get out of that typecast role, then he has to pick just the right vehicle for that. And I think that's where, I think most actors are capable of doing most things, but finding the correct role is really difficult. You know, when we've seen Jim Carrey and um, Adam Sandler break out of their slapstick stupid stuff that got them where they, where they were, and, you know, in Punch Drunk Love, in maybe... Uh, uh, there's a, there's a few roles. It's weird because um, Jim Carrey sort of flirted with it back and forth. He, he would do the mask and then he would do something 
that had a little more um, eternal sunshine on the spotless mind, the, the timing is off on that by a lot. But I'm saying something as ridiculous as you could be and then doing eternal sunshine where there's like real actual uh, human emotion in there that's like really earnest and then going back and doing some other silly high high concept movies. Um, he went back and forth a little bit, but you had to find those perfect vehicles to like be a real actor. Uh, be, sorry, that's not fair. Be a real uh, genuine um, dramatic actor. They say to if you're a good comic actor, you have to be good dramatic. Yeah, because comedy, if, you, if you're doing comedy for real, which I would not include like, um, Adam Sandler's stupid movies, um, the, the more recent, you know, the last five, 10 years or whatever they put on Netflix and things like that. I haven't watched them. I don't know them very well, but, um, those movies, I don't think you have to be good at drama to do those movies. Cause I don't think they live up to that. I don't think Medea right. movies, you don't need to be good at drama. You don't need to be good at drama to do a Medea movie. They're just stupid in my opinion. So they, um, I don't think it holds true for all of them, but I think for, a good comedy, yeah, absolutely. Because but, you're not, you don't play comedy for comedy. That's that's like the misnomer of all times. Is people are like, go be funny, and you're like, no, 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 no. I play this as if it's serious and as if this is real to me. And because of the situation and the lines as written, it will be funny. That's how comedy works. It's not the other way around. You're not just sitting there going, <laughs> uh, pratfall, dumb stuff, like. That's not how it works. It works once or twice, but it doesn't work 50 times in a row. That's not how you make a movie. Okay. I actually didn't know that. So, like, Bruce Almighty, for an example, the people writing it, they would write it like they were writing a drama, but make it comical in the situations, and that's why it was so funny. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because, yeah, because he finds out that he can do anything he wants, right? Like he's almighty, he's God and in this situation. So that's, um, that is high concept, which Jim Carrey was obviously very good at and did a bunch of those things. And it's similar to, you know, like we're talking about like a click with Adam Sandler, right? You can do anything you want now that you have this imbued with this superpower. And he is playing it straight in that situation and the situation gets ever more ridiculous around him. And so he has to be real in that. If he looked at the audience, like maybe they did, I don't know. I've watched Bruce Almighty in a long, long time, but the audience only takes so much of him looking at the audience and being like, this is cool, huh? Look at all this stuff I can do. Crazy, huh? Back to the action. Like then no one takes it seriously and then it gets stupid really fast. And then it's just like, who cares? So he has to be in the situation. He has to understand like, I can do anything this comes with the most amount of uh, responsibility than anything can have, right? With great power comes great responsibility. And so the higher he plays those stakes, the more we feel for him as an audience, as a prototypical fish out of water scenario, that we're scared for him for what could happen next. But we're also, um, you know, brimming over with hope for what could happen next. And like, that's the, fundamental contrast that's in the middle of a high concept movie like that high concept okay. comedy so do you feel like the mummy was trying sometimes in the most ridiculous scenes to be funny or what is it just filmed wrong did they film it wrong or no 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 they're, they're they know what they're trying to do yeah i don't i don't think most um People making movies at that level understand what they're trying to do. The only most of the times things get screwed up is when other people, executives who don't actually know what they're trying to do, don't know how to make movies, which is that definitely happens or or um, venture capitalists or whatever it happens to be these days where people are getting into movie making that have never written a movie, have never cut a movie, have never directed a movie. And they're telling other people what to do. I mean, that's been around for 100 years now because the money ultimately gets what they want unless they're smart enough to get out of the way and let the people who they hired to be the creatives do what they want. Um, you know, good ideas can come from anywhere, but, but in general, you have to have a lot of practice for them to be good ideas. Um, so I would not say that I'll bet there was quite a few notes 
and they wanted it to play more toward a 12-year-old boy instead of an 18-year-old boy. And so they made choices to make it like that as they went along. But I think they probably succeeded in making the movie they wanted, basically. Um, so, yeah, if the, the, it wasn't a mistake that he's acting goofy and doing stupid stuff. That was intentional, for sure. And and that's the movie that they wanted it to be, I would think, like fairly close to what they ended up wanting it to be. It's not like Brendan Fraser woke up every morning and was like, okay, I like to reuse my previous thing. It's like, okay, I'm playing Schindler's List today and I'm, this is somber and you know, this is, this is about fighting a mummy. No, there's a bunch of jokes and stupid stuff and things happening and pratfalls and, and hijinks and all that. So that's what they went for. That's what they did. And that's what people can like if that's the type of movie they want to see. All right. Um, How'd you think about the CGI for as old of a movie as it is? You feel like it stands in time? I uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's any like any of those. They who do you want to say? Certain things tip us off way more than other things, and so like some of it is great, and you're like, yeah, that's fine. I, I totally buy that. It still looks nice, and then other things you're like, wow, that one's really bad. How did that get through? Or, and, you know, from a technological perspective, I mean, some things are just hard to do and were really hard back then and are still hard. And that stuff sort of obviously uh, mutates over time, but it's, it's never easy to do that stuff. It always takes a lot of money to do it right. And I'm sure they did what they could do at the time. You know, everyone's trying hard for sure. Right. But um, do you think sometimes it's better to make a movie without CGI. Cause like I was watching these um, Alfred Hitchcock movies and you know, he, he'd never show you, he'd make you think. And that's what made them so scary is cause you're scared by your own imagination. Whereas in movies like the mummy, it's showing it to you. So you feel like that makes it less scary. Yeah, I mean, that's the argument. You know, they talk about Jaws, and what happened on Jaws, about a thousand problems happened, probably more than a million problems happened on Jaws. But um, if anyone wants to know about how tough filmmaking is, just watch the documentaries on that. They're, they are excruciating. But um, what happened on Jaws was they couldn't get the animatronic robots to work, the, the robot sharks, right? So... They tried multiple versions and they would get in the water and it wouldn't do its thing and all those. And so Spielberg eventually sort of had to cut any of that stuff out that they did shoot and not really use much of anything from the sharks. Um, they just couldn't do it. And CGI didn't exist. There was nothing like that then. And, and so that's what you had. And the movie, I, I, I think everyone has to argue that the movie is scarier and better because of that. Like, that's the best thing that could have happened. That's the way it worked out. They got a couple shots. That's all they needed. They were, there was enough to let you know that it was a terrifying problem if this shark ever got them. And so that was all they needed. And so the movie was better from that. And so from a, a Hitchcock um, perspective, you know, one of his quotes that I like is, you know, there's no terror in the bang, only in the anticipation of it. So you're always Hitchcock was a master of suspense. You know, that's what they say. And suspense is bomb, bunch of people that would be exploded by the bomb. And then you just cut back and forth between them. That's like all you need to do. And that's hard to, to keep ratcheting up um, the, the anticipation there and, and the terror in that moment. But that's all that basically is. And he talks about that a lot is like unstoppable force that is very scary. That will happen. The people, who are going to be hurt by that unstoppable force and the, the thing that can stop it. And you just see that play out in real time. And so you don't need to, all you need to know is that the unstoppable force is a force is unstoppable and will happen imminently. That's all you need to know. You don't need to be kept reminded of how scary it is because if you accomplish it in the first moment, then people believe it and the audience is with it and it's already scary enough. So yeah, I don't know that that would work for the mummy. That's not my point. Right. I'm just saying that's how that works. I just see a lot of movies being made nowadays where they're showing you everything. And I think in most situations, 
it's scarier not seeing it or seeing it once. Yeah, I think um, I think people want to see it, and then they are frustrated when they see it, and then they feel like they got less than they were supposed to get out of a movie. I I don't. There's a lot of debate on that sort of thing, and I don't trust people to look out for their best self-interest in a in a more um, existential sort of way of reckoning with how humankind works. I think people are sort of bad at knowing what they want and seeking that thing and then realizing when they get it that it was in, indeed the correct thing to go after. I just don't think that it happens all that often um, in the grand scheme of things. And so, you know, from a Steve Jobs perspective, he's like, I made the things I knew people would want, not the things that they were asking me to get. He didn't make things. He didn't design an iPhone because people are like, oh, could you make a thing that's all touchscreen with like two buttons? That's what we want. No one said that. No one said that. Everyone was like, uh, make a thing with more buttons. Make it with more stuff it can do built in. And uh, I, I want a BlackBerry, but better. And so what did he do? It made the opposite of a BlackBerry. And that's why people bought a billion of them. Um, and that's why really good art is the same thing. It's not doing what people want. It is doing what they didn't know that they wanted. And those are two very different things. And so, yeah, I would agree with you 100%. Like, stop showing the stuff so much, and people will end up liking it better. It's interesting that you said that because I was watching TikTok, and this um, actor, I can't remember his name, but um, he's an actor, screenwriter, and he was talking about laugh tracks and sitcoms, how everyone complains about the laugh tracks and sitcoms. And so he was writing up a new TV pilot for a comedy he was working on. And he had a test audience of 30 people with the laugh track on, same episode without the laugh track on. He did it like five, six times to see. And every single time with the laugh track, people left more. So laugh track is something people want. They just don't know they want. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, there's something to that. I would have to see the episodes and see how they're cut because uh, comedy is 99% timing and it bad timing will ruin a joke every single time it is bad timing. So obviously there's more to comedy than just timing. You have to have the setup and the punchline, but but in the situation, depending on what type of comedy it is, but um, but bad timing will always ruin it and slightly off timing will almost always ruin it. So all I would say is when you watch, because I've seen episodes or uh, scenes from Big Bang Theory, and when they take out, when they just remove the um, the laugh track, it's awful for a few reasons. And because the show's awful, in my opinion, but for a few <laughs> reasons, because when they pull it out, all you're doing is waiting for the next person to talk. You know, it's, it's set up. Oh, uh, Sheldon, you're so crazy. <laughs> Well, I'm not as crazy as, and so it's like that delay that when you take out the laugh track, you're just watching people wait for other people to talk, which is just excruciating. But um, if you recut it to where it's like tighter and to where all the timing of the joke still was worked without waiting for the audience to shut up, then maybe, I don't know. But I do believe people like laugh track stuff better. Um, I, I think it's the same reason for me personally. It's the same reason I sort of like listening to the radio. Um, I don't want to listen to the ads necessarily, but I like thinking that someone else made a thing for me. You know, I could make a slightly better sandwich for myself, but I probably want my mom to make me that sandwich. Um, traditionally, and my mom's not making me sandwiches all the time or anything, but uh, because someone else made it, uh, like I like it a little bit better. It's, it's, there's a little bit of community there, and I think that's a radio is, and I think that's kind of how a laugh track is if indeed it is uh, reflective of the actual show and the actual scenes and all that stuff. So if you take something like Seinfeld, so what they say about Seinfeld is like, we use a laugh track and we did, we did sweeten things sometimes, meaning like we took laughs from, um, we took laughs and added them to scenes. But what they said was, we never took laughs that weren't part of that scene it just might've been a different take. And because we were already eight takes deep, we didn't have the same amount of laughter on the eighth take. 
but it did exist in that scene. And we were just like sort of making it match how it felt on set, but they weren't just taking canned laughter from some other episode, some other show, some other whatever, and putting that in and being like, ha ha ha, here's the funny part. That's when laugh track is bad. In my opinion, Seinfeld laugh track is not bad because it was real. It was on set and it happened with regard to that scene and that exact moment. Okay. And I do think nowadays a lot of laugh tracks are canned and maybe that's why they're not as good. Well, 100%. I mean, shows have come out in the last two years. How many people were in audiences in the last two years? So you, you know automatically it's fake. Like, it can't be real. It has to be from some other episode, some other show, some other whatever. So do you think the, the, the people putting that laugh track on are going to undersell it? They're going to have less laughs than might have been? No, they're always going to do it over. And so then you're watching. There's the cognitive dissonance of you watching something and being like, this isn't funny. All those people are theoretically laughing at this. That makes it even less funny to me. You know, that's how I, that's how I deal with it for sure. All right. And the thing is, too, it's like it's cheaper. It's easier to do laugh tracks because you only have to write half as many lines. Like I was saying on the Big Bang Theory and Friends and stuff like that. um, There's way less dialogue and way less stuff that has to happen because you're waiting for people to stop cheering or laughing or doing whatever they're doing. The Simpsons and animated shows are different, right? Because they don't have a laugh track. And so that means you can pack in six jokes in 15 seconds like like discrete um discrete jokes about different parts of a thing happening on screen you you know i've seen the examples of it there's six jokes in 15 seconds or whatever and you just literally can't do that with a anything with a laugh track any sort of sitcom um because you're waiting for the audience to shut up you can't do it it's, it's impossible and that's why something like that's why to me personally um uh, animated shows are so much more efficient at being funny. They just, just by virtue of the fact that they're not waiting for other people to shut up. You, uh, I assume you like The Simpsons a lot because it's your uh, profile picture of you as a Simpsons oh, yeah. character. <laughs> yes, I did. That's my favorite show of all time, hands down. Yeah. What? The first about- 12 seasons. The first 12 <laughs> seasons, then I don't give a shit after that. Doesn't count. It doesn't, it's not even a show. So, what was it about that show that drew got you that drew your attention? Yeah, um, there's a multitude of things. I mean, they plays when I when I refer to it, I'm literally referring to like seasons two through ten or two through nine or something like that, and then like one through twelve sort of also or one through 13 who knows but anyway I'm, I'm talking about the golden age of the simpsons which was the most consistent television that's ever been made in terms of comedy for sure um it was they had they made um 200 episodes in a row that were basically perfect like literally if you look at their imdb ratings you could see exactly which episodes in those in that 200 episode span um weren't good uh, because you can see the ratings dipped by like a couple points or whatever. And you know which ones those are? Clips episodes. The only episodes in that entire run that weren't of like a similar quality, a very high eight point something, nine point something, were clips episodes. So you know that like they were incredibly consistent, far more consistent than Family Guy has ever been or any of the iterations of the McFarland stuff. And, um, uh, and other shows, Futurama, in my opinion, also wasn't as consistent, and uh, most other ones aren't, or any other ones are, in my opinion, and certainly not um, sitcoms. There's no sitcom that has been like equal in that many seasons for ten for for eight solid seasons and never getting back. So anyway, there's consistency, and that comes with uh, knowing the characters, being true to the characters, and trying to have things be somewhat realistic in real life. When the Simpsons got bad, um, it's because they stopped caring really about if things could actually happen like that ever, or if characters would actually respond like that, or if Homer would be too dumb to live anymore. They stopped caring about that, and the show went downhill for, in a, for a variety of other reasons, in my opinion. Um, it still has some things to offer. It doesn't have what it used to offer, 
Um, there are there. Are, the Simpsons isn't awful now. It's just not nearly as good as it was, in my opinion, and in the opinion of most people. Um, but it cared about story first. The jokes are the the jokes go along with the story, and they're they took it very seriously who Homer or who any of the characters were as humans. You know, that was like job one. And I think that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. Um, they also, I think you can relate anything, you know, one of my like posits is that um, anything that ever happens in life can be related to the Simpsons in some way. Not even from prognostications, not like, oh, they predicted this thing happening. I'm not even talking about that. I'm saying anything that happens in life, I can find a Simpsons quote for it that elucidates that whatever that thing happened to be in real life. And what I mean by elucidated is like it takes it and it twists it on its head, twists it on its head a little bit, just enough to where you can see it from a different angle and you can understand why that is happening, why that happened, how to feel about it, what's funny about it, what's worth like moving past about it. And that's the beautiful part of good art, good comedy is taking anything like that and being like, yeah, but what about this about that? And then you're like, ah, okay, I get it now. This makes sense. I understand how that happened. And I understand how I can move on from it. Uh, and, and South Park is very good at that too. I think they would be, most people would say South Park's a little less consistent over time. Um, but I think it, uh, you know, South Park is definitely one of my favorites as well. And they're very good at looking at real things happening in life and being satirical about it. You know, certainly one of the best. I imagine that a uh, animation would have a lot of advantage advantages of being animation versus live action because if an actor leaves or something, you won't know because it's voice actor and you could probably find a voice actor that could do similar or you might not even notice. Yeah, that can be for sure. I mean, it's... Um... You, <laughs> there, there. Anytime you get rid of the requirements of your art, so so meaning limitate limitations is a better word. Um, anytime you cut out limitations, you invite far more problems because of sort of option paralysis. So when you can do anything, it's hard to do anything. When you are limited by cheers let's say you have a bar most everything happens in the damn bar when it's limited to the bar then it's you run out of stuff to talk about but you also know that you're not suddenly going to have them flying across the country there's going to be all this crazy stuff happening like that's a episode maybe i haven't watched all the cheers but that happens rarely so you know where you're where all this stuff comes from you get to sort of come up with the same story, but a little bit different each week. And that's far easier. And so that's the problem with, um, with anything when you're talking about animation is like everything's possible at all times. And so I think maybe say a problem with the Simpsons over time is that they started doing things that were less and less believable because everything was possible. And that's when people were like, this is trash. I don't like this anymore. So it's both. It's a double-edged sword of all time. All right. Um, but with the uh, mummy, did you feel like it did too many cliches, or do you think that that was meant to be funny with the theme of the movie? I think it was meant to be funny. I think it is very hard to. It's a hard line to walk in anything you're doing because you have to appeal to what people already understand and think is funny, and and especially like, you know, most um. Anytime you get a trailer for a comedy, they're usually going to have the most cliche jokes because that's going to be the thing that appeals to the most audience members immediately without having to know more about the situation or the characters of the movie or whatever. So I think on a movie like this, they have to move off of cliches to an extent and hopefully they tweak them just enough for people to be all right with it. But um, a lot of times it's not. I, I would say that a, uh, the first mummy is probably a lot less cliche than the second or third mummy. So, 
They fall into their own cliches at that point. That's the bigger problem, I would say. Um, real quick, before we uh, finish talking, I was mm -hmm. curious, what uh, got you wanting to start directing and doing all the things that you've been doing? Yeah, a few different things. But one of the things, honestly, is like I really had a good time in um, college with my roommates and with the people I was hanging out with all the time. And I thought they were really funny and I thought they were just funnier than most movies I would see. And I thought it would be fun for me and, and worthwhile to create things that I wanted to see. So really, that's what it came down to. I just thought that there were better jokes, better, funnier things happening around me than I was seeing on screen. And I wanted to recreate that for the screen. That's a lot of it. Cool. And because you're a director, I'm curious, when you're watching a movie, do you have like the mindset, well, if I was in charge of directing this movie, I would have done this, I would have done that? Or like, is it hard for you to sit in the audience seat when you're? Um, yeah, for sure. I. It is... Um... It is naive to think that when put in a position, you would do any better. I think that's sort of that that's a pretty um, brash thing to look at a movie, especially something big like The Mummy or something like that's a huge tentpole movie for them. And that's with 80 million dollars or whatever went into it. What was it? It was a, it was a lot of money, right? So yeah. the, the type of money that goes into a movie like that, you really have to. Um, you have to assume that the people were doing the best that they could. And that if you were put in that position, it would be equally difficult. You know I mean, I think the hardest job you could have is directing star Wars, uh, seven, right? Like that's impossible. Seven, eight or nine. Like, Oh my God. Like I wouldn't want to, if you held a gun to my head, I wouldn't want to have to be responsible for that. I mean, if someone gave it, I wouldn't take it. I don't know enough about star Wars. So I'm not a good enough, action director so i would say no i would say point blank no because it would be a nightmare it would be awful um and i don't think i'd make a very good movie i'd probably make a worse movie than they made it do i think those movies are great for what they are no not really they've made a lot of there's, there's a million reasons why they screwed that up was it exceedingly difficult not to screw up yes like it's almost an impossible task to make very many people happy with that stuff the majority happy so it's like I don't, I try not to look at movies and think like, oh, I would have done that better. Cause I think that's just a conceited way to look at it. I would hope that I could improve on certain things in a thing that I made by my, uh, in something that I made, I would hope that I could improve where I thought they didn't do it right. But when I'm dropped in that situation, you know, it's like, I can't, I can't go in there for Tom Brady in the Super Bowl and be like, oh, I could do better. Like that's <laughs> basically what it is sometimes. You're like, you don't even know how to play football. And I'm like, yeah, but he sucks. Like that, that, that's the type of mindset you have to have to be like, oh, I could direct better than him. And you're like, dude, you, don't, you have no idea what's going on here. Do you, uh, I, do you like watching bad movies? Because I was reading from someone who was talking about how they believe that watching bad movies, you're going to learn more as a writer than watching good movies because you're going to pay attention to why it didn't work out versus if you're watching a good movie, you're so submerged into it that you're not really looking at everything. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think you definitely can learn more from bad movies. Um, it's a uh, If you're watching, it's so hard for me. I don't watch enough movies, honestly, and I don't get enough time to watch enough movies. And so why I watch a movie is, is a lot of times because I want to watch the ones that my friends are talking about that are going to win, you know, that are up for Oscars, that are just buzzing around to some of the best movies of the year or some old ones I haven't got a chance to see. It's like there's so many movies out there that are really good that I do want to see, both to experience them as a filmmaker and as an audience member that um, it's hard to also watch bad movies. I just don't have the time for it. But um, I do think you can learn an immense amount from bad movies and probably more than from good movies in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think, um, I think 
I've watched enough movies at this point in my life or career that I should be able to go and make a good movie. It is if I watch one more good movie, it's not going to make my ne- next movie better. Like that's that's not the value proposition in this situation. <laughs> it, it could be that if I watched a movie that failed but was like could have been good, and, and so I wouldn't even say it was a bad movie. I would say it was a like an unrequited movie. Then um, then I could probably learn something from that and maybe not make that mistake. You know, I think it's definitely. Um, Eliminating mistakes oftentimes is enough to not suck rather than making a whole bunch of good decisions. Um, So just like in life in general. And so if you had to learn from bad stuff, that's probably a more fruitful venture than learning to imitate good stuff. I would say that's a fairly, fairly reasonable. It just seems like it'd be easier to learn not to do that versus I have to learn to do this. I think so. Yeah. I think you can avoid more, avoid more problems by learning what not to do than trying to learn what to do in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I I, put it this way. I think learning what to do, like you can read in books and you can figure that out fairly well. Um, I, I think that's somewhat clear in most things in the world and most things in life. And it's like, you know what you want to do. You just don't, you know what you're supposed to do. You just don't really want to do it. And so you look for shortcuts. Um, that's not the same as seeing how someone else failed and then realizing like, oh, they really tried. You know, what is it? Um, uh, you know, every corpse on top of, um, of Mount Everest was once a daring person with absolute certainty that they would make it to the top and back down again, right? So learning from their mistakes is better than learning from their a calm, the, the fact that they got up, I think. Yeah. Cause you don't want to die. That's ultimately all you care about is not dying. Right. So, yeah. Um, I was kind of curious though, cause you've made movies and, uh, you've, uh, it's now uh, brick madness and, uh, better. I have not yet put the time to watch either of them, but I know that you directed them. Uh, did you make them yourself? Uh, no one makes a movie by themselves, I guess is what well, I would say there. No, but like I, I did as much as possible on Brick Madness that I think a filmmaker could do. I would so say. You, you wrote it, you directed it, you had to go find the team, you had to uh, go find people to produce it. Pretty much. Yeah, I, I co-wrote it for sure. I didn't I, I didn't do I don't know if I did 50% of the writing or not. I mean, maybe 50% plus, but um, it's hard to say. I definitely co-wrote it. Um, I definitely directed it, but you know, it's with help from my friends and my brother and other people. I definitely ran camera a bunch. I definitely edited. I did the majority, the vast majority of the editing and sound and color and all those things. But um, you know, it takes a lot of people to make a movie, a lot of very dedicated people to make anything, um, even a short film. It's really hard to do just by yourself. So it's always a team effort. And that's what's good about filmmaking is it's a team effort. For sure. I was wanting to try to make a uh, a movie, you know, just kind of practice and learn, like not really expect my first few movies to be all that great because if you're going to have to make mistakes to be good. But um, – I, do you think like how would you recommend someone like me who doesn't really have a whole lot of friends or connections who would like to go about trying to make a movie and would want help and try to find dedicated people? Yeah, I would. Um, I would always go look for people to help first. You know, you want to you want to show them that you care about their projects so that they can hopefully care about your project. You want to show them that you're willing to give your time so that they can hopefully give their time. That's always a reciprocation thing. You know, you, you want to offer up whatever you can offer in earnest. And then if they want to reciprocate, then great. If they don't, then it's like, you can't control that, but you at least have to give them something before they give you something. I think that's definitely the way to look at that situation ever. And in helping them, you realize people that you probably didn't want to work with anyway. 
you know, if you just reach out and be like, Hey, I need help on this thing for one, that's, that's rough. You're probably not going to get much help. And for two, you might end up getting help you don't even want. So I would say going and finding the people you like working with is definitely the most important thing. You know, uh, you look at the Coen brothers and this is not the same thing because there's a bunch of money there and they're really good at it and they make a bunch of movies. It's different. But I'm saying they work with the same people all the time. Or Tarantino, Scorsese, pretty anyone you can name pretty much. Like, they work with the same people over and over again. You know, they won't work with I... the same costume designer for 30 years, 40 years or whatever. Mary Zoffries, I think, is that one. Carter Burwell doing the music. It's like they work with the same people because they have a good working relationship. Um, and, and I think that's important to get. It's a good working relationship with anyone that you can work with. How would you uh, recommend me to try to find people for me to reach out and try to see if I can get involved in stuff they're doing? Like I right now, I'm in a uh, pl- the uh, Great Passion play. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a play about Jesus's life in Eureka. Oh, okay. But um, I'd, how would you recommend me to go about if I would like to try to do something bigger, better, meet people and maybe have an opportunity somewhere? Yeah, it's always a balancing act. So you have to know that on your end, your your game is tight. Like you're, you're ready to bring it when someone else is ready to help. So there's always the study on your end and like the honing of your skills and you can't really do that in terms – you can only do some of those things within a movie context um, without having a team to also help you with that stuff, depending on who you are. Some people can make a movie by themselves, but it's really hard. and You have to be good at a bunch of other stuff to be able to do that in the first place, um, which is also really hard. So you, you want to get a team around you, and to do that, you want to be able to find people that like making movies and that are not looking to get paid immediately from making movies for, for whatever project that might be, right? And so you want to look on any way that you connect with anyone, usually online these days, and that is to find any local filmmaker meetings, to find any film festivals that are happening in your city or, or maybe a close city nearby, something like that, right? And you want to go to those and you just want to hang on, you want to talk to as many people as you can talk to, say what you're doing and offer your services, whatever that might be. So you might want to find something you're good at specifically. You're not going to go to those things and be like, hey, I'll direct your thing for you because no one's going to have you do that. They're there (laughs) to direct their own thing. You're probably not going to say, hey, I'll write your thing for you because people are going to write their own projects. That's why they're getting into filmmaking in the first place. So it's more like, hey, I would love to come – whatever you're good at. And so if you haven't been on set, then you might not be good at uh, setting up lights or doing sound or doing um, art department or things like that. But there's some of those things that you could maybe like help with and just be useful. And even if it was just organizing or whatever, then you can go on set and sort of help with the things that you can help with or learn a a craft of some sort and then help with that stuff. Uh, The ones I just mentioned. And so it is worth... It is worth getting good at a few things or one thing to where you can go help other people with that. And the way to meet those people is to reach out usually on the internet through film festivals or local filmmaker communities or maybe Reddit or something like that and and go that way. That's what I would say. Okay. Uh, And there's an opportunity too these days to where if you're making something, let's say you're making an animated thing and you don't even need to go shoot something, then obviously you can work with anyone around the world. And let's say that you are making something and you only <clears throat> need a small crew to be able to shoot with, but a lot of it happens in post. You have a lot of CGI, whatever. Um, you can reach out to people all over the world to do the sound effects or the music or the CGI or the um, or maybe even the editing, whatever it happens to be. I mean, like that's borderless. That can happen anywhere. And you might find people uh, right now in the Ukraine. Uh, let's check it out different place. You might find someone in Thailand that can can do something great for you and they just want the opportunity to work with someone. Okay. All right. Well, I, uh, I very much appreciated, appreciated, appreciated your time today and I enjoyed sure. talking to you and I, thank, thank uh, you. no problem. I, um, was there anything else you'd like to add? 
uh, go to yeah. So if you want to watch Brick Madness, it's a I think a very funny movie about a national Lego. Um, they're not called Legos in our world, Lego in our world, but uh, a a national tournament for bricks. Uh, but anyway, if you go to Amazon Prime, then that's on there on Amazon. Uh, just look at Brick Madness. You get our brickmadness.com, or you can go to um, uh, bettermovie.com, bettermovie.com, uh, if you want to learn about um, basically the biggest meta study of health and nutrition that ever happened by a, a New York Times bestselling author and the seven Harvard doctors and 35 or so diabetes suffers that we talk to and um, to learn about, you know, to, to finally settle a lot of questions about what to eat, why to eat and how to, how to go about doing that. Um, you know, that's what I would say. So that's um, bettermovie.com. I'll go there. All right. Thank you so much. And I look forward, I'll um, get back to you as soon as I can figure out a good date for us to do those movies. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks, Terry. No problem. You have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. I have to interrupt this episode to tell you something I've been dying to share with you. Have you heard of the company Habits365? You haven't? <laughs> Do you live in the cave? <laughs> I support Habits365 because you get great quality clothes, and by you giving money to them, you're helping spread positivity every day of every year. What's better than that? I'll tell you what's better than that. If you buy something from them and you by clicking on the link below, going to their website, use promo code FAITHFULFILMFANATIC in all caps and I'll save you some money too. So really, it's a win-win. What are you waiting for? Let's get back to the episode. <laughs>